Due to the coronavirus, we have not been meeting together as a church, and so we are recording the next several series of messages as Bible study devotionals for at-home use. If you would like to see videotape recordings of these or to receive uh, our at-home worship guide, please go to graceclanton.com, and if you click on Coronavirus Updates, you should find all the information that you need. Thank you. Hey guys, welcome back to uh, week two of our uh, home worship experience. Uh, as I'm about to uh, to read, I do want to say this. Uh, thank you for uh, your feedback. Um, we heard a lot of good things and hopefully it was helpful to you and your family as we uh, worshiped from home together. Uh, I'm about to read the passage for the day, but before I do, let me just make a, a few suggestions while I'm reading, I want you to, to do three things, and you can do this in your head. You can write it down uh, on a piece of paper, uh, but I want you to, to notice, uh, make note of any insights, anything that jumps off the page as you read. What is it that, uh, that jumps out at you? Write that down. Um, any questions you have, if, if Luke were sitting right next to you, the, the writer of the, the book we're about to look at, if, if Luke were sitting right next to you, what questions would you ask him? What would you want to know? And then third, um, any applications? What is this passage telling you to, to do or to change about what you think, about what you feel, about what you're, um, how you speak, any of those things, any applications? All right, so I'm going to read. And then if you want to make note of those things as I'm reading, and then you can actually pause the video. And you and your family, whoever is there with you, can talk through it. If you have young children, of course, you may not want to do all of that. You may just want to simply ask them, what did you hear? What do you think uh, the Bible is telling us about today? Um, but you can pause the video, you can talk about it, and then you can play the video and listen to the, the sermon message. So... Um, today we are going to be in Luke 22. We're going to start in verse 63. This is a longer passage. I'm going to read all the way to uh, chapter 23, verse 25. And remember, last week we looked at Jesus being arrested. So this week uh, we are seeing Jesus put on trial. So let's give our attention to God's word, starting in Luke 22, verse 63. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand at the, of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. 
And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You've said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he'd heard about him and was hoping to see some sign or miracle done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priest and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I don't find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is God's word. And just like God, it is good and it is true. So let's ask for his help as we learn from it this morning. Let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, your Holy Spirit would come and would open the eyes of our hearts. Lord, would you instruct us? Would you show us uh, what it is you have for us this morning in your word? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... Again, I asked you for uh, insights or observations you made as I read through the text or as you read it together. And I do want to mention this. If you do have young children at home, it may even benefit you uh, to have this, uh, to, to read this passage in the Jesus Storybook Bible or um, uh, another good children's Bible, just so you get a sense of the flow of the narrative. But one of the things that I noticed uh, in this passage, first and foremost, is Jesus is innocent, overwhelmingly innocent, right? You, you see Jesus face uh, three different inv investigations in Luke's gospel, uh, three different trials, so to speak. The first one is before the Jewish uh, Sanhedrin, the religious authorities. The second is before Pilate. Uh, and the third 
is before Herod. And then Jesus comes back to Pilate. And, and Herod and Pilate are, are both uh, governing authorities. They would have, uh, Pilate was the Roman governor and Herod was uh, the Jewish king. He was, he was kind of a puppet king underneath Rome, but he was a Jewish man who worked for the Romans. Uh, and so Jesus was from his district and Herod would have been responsible for that. So, but in each one of those investigations, each one of those trials, Jesus is found to be innocent. In fact, Pilate says multiple times, uh, as the crowds and the leaders, religious leaders, are wanting to condemn Jesus, Pilate says multiple times, he's innocent, I find no guilt in this man, he's done nothing uh, deserving of death. Uh, so what is it that they're looking for? Let's start with the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, and it would help uh, to remember that in American, uh, in the American justice system, we have this principle called innocent until proven guilty. That means that, uh, or should mean that when you appear before a court of law, uh, that you are presumed innocent and that it is the job of the court, it's the job of the, uh, the prosecutor uh, to convince the jury that you're guilty. Uh, but you don't start out guilty and have to prove your innocence. You start out innocent, uh, and guilt must be proven. And similarly, Jewish law required that, um, that if you were going to be convicted of a crime, you had to have at least two witnesses. And so um, an accused criminal was considered innocent until he was proven guilty. Not quite like our system, but similarly. Um, but Mark's gospel tells us that even though there were lots of witnesses against Jesus, they were all false, they were all lying, and none of them could agree, right? No two witnesses could agree with each other. So, so this Jewish court can't make a case against Jesus. And there's another reason that this Jewish court is in the wrong. They actually know what they want the verdict to be before they get there. They, they want Jesus to be guilty, they want Jesus to be executed. And so they're trying to get uh, that guilty verdict uh, without, um, without any sense of due process. So already the deck is stacked, uh, in one sense, against Jesus. He's innocent, uh, and they're trying very hard to make him be guilty. But he's innocent of any real crime. And it's instructive. Look at what they want to know in, verse tw uh, in, in chapter 22, verse 67. They ask him this question, are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Now, remember that word Christ is not Jesus' last name, uh, but it's the word Messiah. Uh, it's a Hebrew word. It means anointed one. And so the Messiah uh, was a king promised in the Old Testament, but he was a king like David who would come one day and would bring God's kingdom. Uh, he would bring judgment against God's enemies, and he would bring salvation to God's people. Uh, and so they were looking for the Messiah. And so that's what they want Jesus to answer. Are you that person? Are you the one we're looking for? Now, if you've been with, uh, if you've listened to any of this series before, you know that while they were using the word Messiah, the kind of Messiah they were looking for was not the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. So for my friends who've watched The Princess Bride, uh, you, 
no Inigo Montoya. If he was there and he heard them say the word Messiah, he would have said, uh, you keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. Right? They, they were saying Messiah, but they were looking for this warrior king. They were looking for someone who was going to storm into the city, uh, was going to defeat the Romans. But Jesus hasn't come to be a warrior king. He's come to be the suffering servant. And so when they ask him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Jesus can't just say yes, right? And that's, that's one question I would have for Luke is when Jesus is asked a direct question, why doesn't he just speak plainly? Why doesn't he just say, yep, I'm, I'm the Messiah or yep, I'm the king. And the reason is because he is the Messiah, but he's not the kind of Messiah they're looking for. So Jesus has to give this qualified answer. Uh, the way that he answers the Sanhedrin when he says, um, actually the first thing he says is, uh, when they ask him, he says, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And that's true. Uh, they've been asking Jesus questions for a long time, uh, and they have not received Jesus' answers. Even when Jesus has answered their questions, uh, they have refused to believe what Jesus has said. So their, their eyes are already closed to Jesus. Uh, they, they don't really want to hear what, what Jesus has to say, uh, nor are they willing to answer his questions. Just a few chapters back, we see Jesus ask these same leaders a question, uh, and they refuse to answer, uh, not because they don't know the right answer, but because they're afraid that that answer is going to cost them something. And so uh, Jesus says, it really doesn't matter how I answer your questions because you don't believe me anyway. But then he goes on to say, he gives this qualified answer. He says, uh, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So Jesus says he is the, the Son of Man. And that, that phrase is a, a vision from the Old Testament book of Daniel, chapter 7. You can go read it, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And in Daniel, we see this, uh, this Son of Man, this one like a, like a man, who comes from heaven with the power of heaven, and he is given authority over all the earth uh, as, a, as a ruler, as a king, as a judge. And so Jesus answers their questions by saying, I'm the son of man. Uh, I'm the one who has been given this power. Uh, and when they go on and they ask another question, he says, when they ask him, are you the son of God then? And he says, you say that I am. Right? Jesus gives this qualified answer. He's, it's as if Jesus is saying, yes, but not in the way that you think it. Not in the way you mean that question. Jesus does the same thing to Pilate. When Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you say so. Uh, and what Jesus is doing is saying, yes, I am, but not in the way that they mean it. Not in the way that you think of it. I am a king, but not the kind of king that they say that I am. So Jesus says yes, but he qualifies his answers. Uh, and what we see, uh, so Jesus is claiming, when he calls himself the Son of Man, he is claiming to be this divine, kingly judge. And, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. But what I want you to see right now is that that's enough for the Jewish court. They hear Jesus say that, and uh, in other Gospels, 
they go crazy, right? A, a riot ensues because they believe that Jesus is blaspheming, insulting God by saying that he sits at God's right hand. He is, uh, he is insulting the majesty and holiness of God. So I want you to notice Jesus answers truthfully and it cost him his life. Now, some things that, uh, some things that that tells us. Things that, how do we apply some of that? First, we would say this, right? That, that truth matters, but it's costly. It co- it's costly to Jesus to speak the truth. And it's often costly to you and to me. Think, think about the reasons that we usually lie and slander. And I, I thought of two. We usually lie and slander other people, lie about other people, uh, for two reasons, uh, self-defense and self-promotion. Right? When we lie, we do so to protect ourselves and to make ourselves look better than other people. And so, <clears throat> and think, about, think about the garden. Uh, the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, when God comes to approach Adam and Eve, one, they're hiding Right, so self-defense, and then two, when God asks what they've done, uh, they automatically blame the other person. Right, so self-defense and self-promotion. But Jesus, uh, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't have to do that. Why? Why doesn't Jesus feel the need to defend himself? Why doesn't he feel the need to promote himself? And it's because Jesus is absolutely secure in the love of his Father. And in the plan of his father, right? Jesus has no need to defend himself, no need to promote himself because he, he, he knows who he is. He knows that he is loved by his father in heaven. And he knows that whatever his father has in store for him, it will turn out okay. He knows that even though he is facing great injustice on this day, there will be a day when God brings perfect justice. So he can wait for that day. Look, self-promotion and self-defense, those make perfect sense if there is no God. Right? If, if, all, if all I can get is all I'm going to get, if it's all up to me, then yep, I'm always going to spin the story. I'm always going to aim to make myself look better. I'm always going to make sure that I, that I modify the truth just a little bit. Um, maybe a lot, maybe a little, but I'm always going to have to defend and promote myself. But if I, like Jesus, can know that my identity rests secure in a loving Heavenly Father, well, then the truth, the truth may still be costly to me. It was costly to Jesus, but I don't have to fear its consequences. I don't have to worry about what the truth is going to cost me. And so the question maybe would be, how do we handle others mistreating us? Uh, how do we handle injustice done against us? How do we handle uh, other people saying things about us that, that aren't true? Well, first Peter takes this, uh, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, writes a letter. Uh, we call it First Peter. And he says this in First Peter 2, verses 21, and 23, 21 through 23, he says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, 
so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, how, how can we do that, and how can Jesus do that? Well, now I want, I, I want to go back for a minute to Jesus' answer for, my, uh, for the other observation. Not only is Jesus innocent, but Jesus is also exactly where he's supposed to be. Right? This whole scene is one of great injustice. Uh, many of you have faced injustice at the hands of other people. You have been done wrong. You have been hurt. Um, and, and one of the things that, that Peter wants us to know as we see Jesus before on, on trial here is that he knows a thing or two about injustice. In fact, there has been no more unjust moment, unjust moment than this moment in history when the perfectly innocent Son of God is slandered and falsely accused. But I want you to notice that Jesus is exactly where he's supposed to be. There's some great irony here, okay? Uh, first, re- remember that part about the Son of Man where Jesus says that, that he's the real judge. He's the real king. All authority has been given to him. He's the real ruler. Well, that means that this scene is all backwards and upside down, right? If, if he's the judge then he should be the one on the bench. He should be sitting in the chair making, uh, making the judgment, making the verdict. But instead, he's the one on trial. He's the one who stands accused. And if he's the true king, he's the real ruler, then he should be putting a stop to all of this madness and injustice. But instead, it's reversed. He's allowing himself to be carried away by an angry mob, by unjust accusations, by a spineless Roman emperor who won't step in to make things right. Why? Why does Jesus do that? Is Is he crazy? Does he have a death wish? Well, we see the answer in the very last scene of this passage. Um, Pilate has a a choice. He can release... um, Barabbas, or he can release Jesus, and he gives that choice to the crowd. Uh, and Barabbas is is this violent rebel. He he led an uprising in the city. He'd killed some people. He murdered some people. Um, and Pilate offers them Barabbas. He says, "You can pick the violent murderer, or you can pick innocent Jesus." And you notice they pick Barabbas. Now, here's the irony. Barabbas is the guilty one. Barabbas is the one who is guilty of what they're accusing Jesus of. Jesus is completely innocent of their charges, and Barabbas is guilty. But they trade places. Let me add a little, another layer to that. Barabbas' name means son of the father. And I hope you catch that right here. Jesus, the true son of the father, who is completely innocent, is trading places with the guilty, violent, murderous Barabbas. The innocent trades places with the guilty. Isn't that the gospel? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The innocent one trades places with the guilty so that the guilty man can go free. That's the good news that Jesus offers. I hope you believe it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that, uh, that you would work it into our hearts, uh, that we would see our Savior Jesus innocent, uh, the innocent ruler and king and judge coming and trading places with us so that we could go free. May we believe it, and may it transform everything about the way that we live. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.